Good morning, everyone. Um, it is so good to be together and just worship, isn't it? God is so, so gracious. I was counting, there were 13 of us in the room, just 13, and yet the God of the universe came and, and dwelt among us. I don't know if you could just feel, I can feel the Holy Spirit among us now. It's just incredible that 13 of us in a school hall in the middle of Swindon and the God of the universe comes to meet us. Um, so... Um, I'm not going to introduce myself, I know everyone here, um, but this morning we're going to be continuing, <laughs> um, this morning we're going to be continuing our series on the book of Daniel. Um, before we have a look at this week's passage, I'm just going to do a quick recap on what's happened so far, and I'm hoping the technology is going to work, which it does, amazing. So um, we started in Daniel 1, where we heard that Daniel and his friends were captured by the Babylonians, that they were taken to a foreign land, given new names and expected to follow a completely new way of life. We heard how Daniel and his friends remained devoted to their god, Yahweh, who in turn gave them wisdom and they found favour in the eyes of the Babylonian king. Then in chapter 2, Daniel was able, through God's supernatural power working in him, to reveal and interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, even when all the wise men and magicians of Babylon are completely stumped. And then last week, we looked at Daniel 3, where three of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, They take a stand for God, refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, even when they're threatened with certain death. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but are miraculously kept safe from harm, and they come out of the fire without even the smell of smoke on their clothes. And chapter three ends with King Nebuchadnezzar declaring, there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. So now we're going to look at Daniel 4. Um, If you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Apologies if you've got a slightly different version. Um, So starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers all came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, "Oh Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, 
bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of the field. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practising righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, and that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules and the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword and able to cut right into our hearts and our spirits. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that we've already felt your presence among us and I pray that that you'll be opening our hearts even now as I speak to hear what, what you want to speak to us individually and as a church for your glory. Amen. So this passage gives the remarkable testimony of how a pagan king encounters God and is radically changed. Finishing with Nebuchadnezzar boldly declaring, as we've just heard, that Daniel's God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the most high, the one true God. If Daniel 2 teaches us that God reveals, Daniel 3 demonstrates that God rescues, or Daniel 4 shows us that God rules. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a nice picture of him, um, was a formidable ruler who commanded the Babylonian army as the crown prince, even before he ascended to the throne in around 605 BC. He continued to conquer other nations whilst also rebuilding and enhancing the city of Babylon. The Bible tells us he was resting in his palace, but God broke in. Verse 5 tells us that he had a dream that made him afraid and that alarmed him. This was a seasoned warrior who'd won many battles, not someone known to be easily frightened. But so concerned was he that he calls for all the wise men to be brought to him so that he may hear the meaning of the dream. He tells them the dream, but no one can give him an interpretation. Then he calls for Daniel, who he knows will be able to give him the answer. Daniel confirms the king's worst fears and tells him that he is the tree that will be cut down that he will be driven from his palace and eat grass like an ox. It's pretty damning judgment. Yet, actually, there's glimpses of God's grace and mercy even here. I don't know if you noticed, the tree is chopped down, but the stump and the roots remain. Nebuchadnezzar is disciplined, but he's not destroyed. There's still hope for regrowth in the future. And Daniel hints that if and when Nebuchadnezzar accepts that God is in control and submits to his rule, then actually his kingdom may return. And then in another show of mercy, God's judgment is held off for 12 months, giving Nebuchadnezzar opportunity to humble himself and change his ways. Now, as we've just read, unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't heed Daniel's warning. And 12 months later, the prophesied judgment comes to pass. The king's standing on the roof of his palace, like that, um, overlooking the city that he'd built. This would have been a remarkable sight to look upon. And actually, what I love about reading Daniel is through historical records and archaeological excavations, we actually have a really reasonable picture of what Babylon looked like. Um, Stephen Miller in his commentary on Daniel writes, Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat and then by an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defence towers at 60 feet intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double wall system that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. 
The Ishta Gate, which was where certainly one of Nebuchadnezzar's palaces was, was 40 feet high, and the walls would have approximated this size. So we, we know from other historical records that Nebuchadnezzar had at least three palaces and that he'd created the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon that um, is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar revels in his achievements, but he proudly proclaims they're for his glory and his majesty. And at that point, God speaks again, this time not in a dream, but in a voice from heaven. The prophesied judgment's enacted, and Nebuchadnezzar loses his reason, is driven away from other men, instead eating grass and living like a beast. This was most likely through a rare medical condition known as boanthropy, where a person believes themselves to be a bovine creature, such as a cow or an ox, and behaves as such. And interestingly, there's documented cases in modern medical literature that are actually remarkably similar to the description of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. And if you want to chat about the medicine of it, I'd love to talk to you about that over lunch. <laughs> Not, not, not yet, but you, you, you never know. Um, so um, the passage tells us that this continued for seven periods of time. Now, there's some debate among scholars in different commentaries as to whether this was seven months or seven years. Um, I personally tend to come down on the seven years side of things. And it's interesting because there's actually some historical evidence of a seven-year period when the Babylonian army carried out no military operations, perhaps because they didn't have a competent leader during that time. But either way, seven months or seven years, this was a significant period of time. At the end of this time, Nebuchadnezzar looks to God and his reason returns to him. He's re-established as king, and by the grace of God, he's able to regain his kingdom. However, now his pride's been broken, his heart's been changed, and he now recognises and worships the true God. So what can we, sitting in a hall in Swindon, two and a half thousand years later, learn from this passage? So I want to pick out three areas of application for us today. Oh, I forgot to put the picture up. That's a picture of what he might have looked like. Um, so first area of application is courage. So there's some parallels in this chapter with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two that we looked at a few weeks ago, with Daniel providing interpretation where others seemed unable. But there's also some striking differences that you might have noticed. In Daniel 2, the king says he wants someone to tell him the dream and interpret it. And of course, the wise men of Babylon are able to do neither. Daniel's response then is he says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's then able to tell Nebuchadnezzar both the dream and the interpretation. Compare that to here in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar's happy to tell them what the dream is, which has made him afraid. Um, now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but... To me, the interpretation seems pretty obvious, yet the wise men of Babylon wouldn't interpret it for the king. Was it because they were afraid of what the consequences might be if they confirmed the king's fears that he was going to face apparent ruin? Now, in the passage, Nebuchadnezzar tells us that at last Daniel came to me. He knew that Daniel would speak the truth to him when no one else would. Unlike in chapter two, where Daniel and his friends had to go and seek God for revelation, here Daniel knows what it means straight away. Verse 19 tells us that as soon as he heard it, he was dismayed and alarmed. But Daniel stepped out, went ahead, gave the interpretation and called Nebuchadnezzar out on his pride. We need courage to speak the truth in our society. Increasingly, questions are asked of Christians to see if we're going to hold firm to the truth that's in the Bible or if we're going to accept a watered-down theology which doesn't offend the culture around us. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but... 
as an example, Kate Forbes, who many will be aware of, a Christian politician in Scotland who's running to be the next leader of the Scottish National Party. She's been repeatedly asked about her beliefs on abortion, gender and sexuality. She's been particularly vilified by the press because she said that had she been a Member of Parliament in 2014, she would have voted against the legalisation of gay marriage. Her main opponents are practising Muslim, and he was actually an MSP in 2014. He decided, some would say conveniently, to be absent on the day of the vote and has managed to avoid taking a stand. But of the two of them, who's the one who's taking the PR on the political hit? It's Kate the Christian. This week, while scrolling Twitter, <clears throat> I came across the story of a Methodist Bible lecturer who was actually sacked by their Bible college for posting on Twitter something about biblical views on sexuality. There could be pressure even within the church and even within Christian organisations to compromise on the truth of the Bible. But depressing though this all may seem, none of this should actually surprise us. Jesus warns us in John 16 that in the world we'll have tribulation. Yet Jesus also says to us, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you on my account, for your reward is great in heaven. Standing up for truth isn't always easy, and it may lead to ridicule and persecution, may lead to loss of jobs, loss of opportunities, but the Bible challenges us and the Holy Spirit empowers us to be strong and stand firm. Now, in this passage, Daniel has the courage to speak truth to the king, knowing that this was a proud king who actually, as we've seen, had previous form for mass executions and had a habit of throwing people who upset him into a fiery furnace. Yet Daniel wasn't only courageous, but actually he also showed compassion. Verse 19 tells us that he was dismayed when he heard the dream and his response to Nebuchadnezzar was, I really wish this wasn't for you. He then goes on to plead with the king to change his ways that he may remain prosperous. This type of compassionate courage isn't standing in a town centre yelling that people are going to hell or shouting abuse at people walking into an abortion clinic both of which I've sadly seen done in the name of God. We're called to be courageous and speak the truth. We're called to not compromise on what the word of God says, but we're called to be compassionate and speak out because what we want is the best for people. Um, I saw an interview recently with Tim Farron, who many of you will know the story from a few years ago where he was essentially forced out as leader of the Liberal Democrat Party because he held firm to biblical views on homosexuality. Um, and there's a great quote that I just want to read out. He says, as a Christian, I'm not offended by this sort of stuff at all because we're promised trouble. We're promised to be had a go at. And what we're meant to do in response is not to whine about being cancelled, but it's to turn the other cheek and model a kind of love for the enemy that is so utterly countercultural that it might actually draw people to the gospel. Now, it's easy to stand up and say things like that on a Sunday, but actually this is from someone whose political career crashed and burned because he had the courage to speak the truth rather than conform. Yet, and it's worth looking at the interview if you've not seen it, there isn't anger or resentment in their voice. There's a true compassion for others and ultimately a heart for the gospel. So let's be a church who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak the truth with courage but with compassion. Now, the second and likely most obvious application is our call to humility. So Nebuchadnezzar finishes his testimony declaring that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. 
Now, pride is something that's commonly discussed throughout the Bible, but we can sometimes struggle with some of those passages, I think, because the way we use the word pride in our modern English can have a little bit of a different meaning. So I might say, I'm really proud of Matthew for how he did in his times table test. And actually what I'm really saying is, I want to celebrate his hard work and I want to celebrate his success. Or I might say, you know what, I take pride in my work. I take pride in my job, meaning that I, I want to work hard and I want to honour my employer. I want to honour my patients. And I think this use differs a little from the pride that we see written about in the Bible. Um, so in Hebrew, which most of the Old Testament is written in, there's several different words which we might translate as pride in modern English. Two of these are geon and gobar. So if we look at Proverbs 16:18, which is the source of the popular saying that pride comes before a fall, it uses both these words. In the ESV that I tend to use, it translates pride, geon, goes before destruction, and a haughty, gobar, spirit before a fall. So geon literally translates to swelling excellence. It's a good word. It's a kind of form of self-importance, thinking yourself to be better than you are. Um, I don't know if anyone here watches The Apprentice. In fact, I know that John does. I don't know if anyone else does. Um, I did have a picture of it. There we go. Nice picture of Lord Sugar in the middle. Um, so for anyone who hasn't, basically The Apprentice is a reality TV show where you get a bunch of young men and women, most commonly with very little real-life business experience, who want to win a quarter of a million pound investment from Alan Sugar. And in their promo videos that are shown at the beginning of the series, they come out with the most outrageous statements. Um, such as, my first word wasn't mummy, it was money. Or, everything I touch turns to sold. <laughs> Business is the new rock and roll, and I'm Elvis Presley. I'm not a one-trick pony, I'm not a ten-trick pony. I've got a whole field of ponies waiting to literally run towards this job. I'm my absolute favourite, I think outside the box. If I was an apple pie, the apples inside me would be oranges. I, I would argue that what these candidates are demonstrating is gay on pride, a swelling excellence, a self-importance that isn't justified. The other type, which, as we said, is often translated as haughty, um, is gobar. And that refers to those who are, who are powerful or successful and lord it over others, using their power to serve themselves rather than serve others. Um, I couldn't really think of a, a humorous example for this because it's, it's actually really sad. Um, but without being too political, Donald Trump um, famously or infamously said, I'm so powerful, I'm so popular, I could go into Times Square in New York, shoot someone with a gun and no one would touch me. I'd argue that that's Gobar pride. And actually it's this Gobar pride which is closest to the Aramaic word in Daniel 4, which is translated pride in most of our Bibles. Both Gaon and Gobar pride represent a heart issue where either we believe ourselves to be better than we really are, or where we use what we've got to serve our own interests rather than to help others. King Nebuchadnezzar built and ruled over a really impressive kingdom, but actually that wasn't the real problem. And we can see this in the passage by the fact that when he humbled himself and turned to God, his kingdom was not only restored, but actually became greater still. Now, we need to be careful that we don't take things too far and kind of think it's formulaic that, well, if we're humble, we're going to get lots and lots of earthly riches. But it's clear from the passage that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom wasn't the issue. His heart was. So often when we read in the Bible, we don't get a feel for the passing of time. For example, it's not immediately obvious that probably about 20 years passed from the fiery furnace in Daniel 3 to Daniel 4 that we're studying today. 
But actually, in this passage, it's strikingly clear on time. It says, Nebuchadnezzar is on his roof, surveying his kingdom and proclaiming his own mighty power and majesty. Verse 31 tells us, the words were still in his mouth when a voice from heaven rebuked him and God's judgment came. We can also get an insight into what the heart issues were by how Daniel speaks after the interpretation. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that the coming judgment will be until he realises that the Most High rules and that Nebuchadnezzar serves at the pleasure of God. Daniel then, in his call to Nebuchadnezzar to repent, pleads with him to show mercy to the oppressed. And actually, Jesus mirrors this challenge in Luke 14 when he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. I love that verse. It's not, they might not repay you, but do it anyway. It's not even, even though they won't repay you, do it. It's invite the poor because they can't repay you. Pride turns its nose up at those less fortunate to us, while humility loves its neighbour as itself. Now, a slight aside, a little bit of a word of warning when we're thinking about pride. I think we need to be careful that we don't mix up humility with self-deprecation. Now, you can find out a lot about my TV habits this morning. Um, I don't know if anyone's a West Wing fan here. I'm getting Eddie's putting his hand up. Um, so there's a scene in the West Wing where President Bartlett, the man on the phone there, um, finds out from his staff that there's a telephone advice line run by Butterball. That's their kind of equivalent of Bernard Matthews, the people who make all the turkeys. Um, not make them, you, you know what I mean. Um, and that this telephone line gives information on how to cook your Thanksgiving turkey. President Bartlett thinks this is amazing and he decides to phone the hotline to try it out. But he can't kind of go, this is the president, tell me how to cook my turkey. So he kind of pretends to just be a normal American citizen. Now, the call taker starts asking what his name is. So he's quickly trying to like, make up a name in the moment. Then they want to know his address, and he's trying to make up an address. And then they want to know, well, what's the zip code and phone number? And he's desperately trying to kind of come up with answers to keep up the pretense that he's just a regular American citizen. I think at one point, the call taker even says, your voice sounds awfully familiar. And he kind of has to try and pretend. Um, and the scene's hilarious to watch because the situation is so ridiculous. He's not an ordinary citizen. He's the president. He's the most powerful man in the whole country. Yet actually, we can be sometimes just as outrageous in the way we respond when people compliment us or talk about our gifting. It's far too easy to deny the gifts that God has given us or even who we are in Christ, all in the name of being humble. But we've got a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Let's celebrate them but let's celebrate the giver. There's a worship song that used to be popular in my teens that's called Thank You For Saving Me. And it's got a line at the end of the first verse which says, a sinner called by name. Now, I don't have any problems with the theology in the song, and I've certainly used that song when I've led worship. The problem is, because it's kind of the last line, it's the bit people walk away going, a sinner called by name. And the danger is we dwell on that. And we then, you hear people saying things like, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But actually, as John so helpfully said right at the beginning, that's who we were, that's not who we are. Because we're saved by grace, we're not sinners, we're saints. We were blind, but now we see. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, but now we're found. Psalm 24 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above. Humility isn't about downplaying who we are, what we have, or our gifting. It's about recognising that all we have is a gift from God, 
that it all belongs to him and that, as we again so helpfully sang this morning, it's all for his glory. Pride says, I've earned this. Humility says, God's given this. Pride says, this is mine. Humility says, this all belongs to God. Pride says, wow, me. Humility says, wow, God. Now, pride may be more obvious when we've got a lot, whether that's possessions, achievements, or gifting. But actually, pride can also slip in in the midst of hardship and trouble. We don't know why Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted by seven years, but I can't help but wonder if this is how long it took to break his pride. Um, I find it fascinating if we compare this to 2 Samuel 12, when the prophet Nathan comes to David after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. In a similar way, Nathan calls David out and pronounces the Lord's judgment on him. But actually, David repents straight away and the Lord takes away his sin. Seven years, immediately. It feels to me that a proud heart is hard to break. And Charles Spurgeon writes, pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a well-watered garden. It's every touch is evil. None have more pride than those who dream that they have none. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. But verse 34 tells us that eventually Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and that his reason returned. Now, what we don't know is how much awareness and understanding Nebuchadnezzar had during that period. But what we can see is that when he stopped focusing on himself and his situation and looked instead to God, that he was able to find healing and restoration. When we face troubles, it's easy for us to look down in dejection, to look around at our circumstances, to look inward at ourselves. And this can be a form of pride, saying, I can fix this, I need to fix this. But actually what we need to do is to lift up, to lift up our gaze to God. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Pride says, I can do this or I can fix this because I've got some inner strength. But actually humility says, I'm weak, but he is strong and in my weakness he is strong. Now, of course, this doesn't mean everything will necessarily get better right away, but we can rest in the love and peace of God who has given us so much, whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in. As Matt Redman says in one of his songs, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. Yet when the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. In the good times, let's look up and glorify the one from whom all good and perfect things come. And in the hard times, let's lift our eyes to our good father and trust in his power. And in all things, let's follow the ultimate example of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes so helpfully in Philippians, says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the third point of application I want to pick out is repentance. So as Becky discussed last week, Babylon was a polytheistic society. That is, the people believed in many different gods. And King Nebuchadnezzar himself worshipped multiple gods, with different gods serving different purposes. He believed in the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
but actually he still followed other gods as well. And you might have noticed in verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar still uses Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which literally means Bel protects the king, and he refers to Bel as his god. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar realised that Daniel's God reveals. And in Daniel 3, he realised God rescues, but he hadn't yet grasped that God rules. He'd been impressed by the God of Israel, but he hadn't been converted. There's people in our world today who might believe in God. They may have even been impressed by the life and teaching of Jesus, but they've not acknowledged his rule and let him reign in their lives. Now, I, I don't know where everyone in the room today is at or who might be listening to this podcast but it may apply to some people who are listening. You might see Christianity as a nice set of moral ideas, but never have given your life to Jesus. And I believe God would call people today to recognise that the God of the Bible, the God of Daniel, still rules and reigns today. And through Jesus has made a way for us to repent or turn away from our old lives and live for him. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus came to the earth as a baby. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross so that we can have a relationship with the God who created, sustains and rules the universe. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our lips and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that we can have that relationship with God and that we can have the guarantee of eternal life in him. So if, if anyone's listening, however means that may be in the, in the cyberverse, um, and, and that's you, please don't go another minute without doing something about it. Talk to someone who you know loves Jesus and let them talk through and pray with you. But I believe there's also a message of repentance for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus. Actually, our modern Western society is just as polytheistic as Babylon was. We just don't call them gods. Nebuchadnezzar had been impressed by the saving power of God I mean, he'd seen incredible signs that I've not seen in my life. Yet he went back to saying, Bell protects the king. And I think we can just as easily stand here on a Sunday morning declaring the power of God. Yet actually, when the rubber hits our road, we put our hope in our careers, in our money, in our family, in our possessions. And just as in the first commandment, when the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me, Jesus tells us in Mark 12 that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. Jesus calls us to put down our idols, to put down our other gods, and to love, trust, and worship him and him alone. Daniel 4 is an incredible testimony of how God changes lives, how he graciously restored Nebuchadnezzar when he turned to God, and how he rules and reigns over all. As Nebuchadnezzar declares near the end of the chapter, His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now I praise and extol and honour the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. Daniel 4 encourages us to speak truth with courage and compassion, to demonstrate true humility as our Lord Jesus did and to set aside all other gods and idols and follow him. We're going to worship in a minute. And as we declare truth about God and as we sing about what Jesus has done for us, let's allow the Holy Spirit to be continuing to work among us, speaking to us individually and corporately as a church and strengthening us so that we can stand firm in this, our Babylon.